Hello class. So I will start a new um, kind of uh, recording for my class and this is going to be a podcast mode of recording and I will call this uh, panel label. You've seen that I have panels in my uh, class page. So this uh, kind of a panel I will call computationally speaking. So it's kind of like a podcast format and I will call it computationally speaking. So my goal in this um, section or uh, panel um, which will recur in different parts of the week, um, may or may not happen every week, is to either give you some foundational computer science concept or to reinforce some concept that we have been working on or somewhat orthogonal to the concepts that we have been working on to whet your appetite about something new. That was kind of what I wanted to do by giving you uh, papers on cloud and serverless computing, which was kind of orthogonal to what was going on in class. And then I also gave you some papers uh, this week to reinforce some of the concepts in class, such as ways in which we have used support vector machines in our work, right? So support vector machines, like I had told you, can work as classifiers or regressors. And by default, when we say SVM, we generally refer to the SVC, that is the classifier variant of support vector machines. So this is kind of a new uh, segment that I'm starting in our class and I'm excited about it because, you know, maybe I'm going to try to make these about 10 minutes. So you can do like a 10 minute workout or a 10 minute run or a 10 minute chore and you can listen to this and hopefully it'll be a little bit anecdotal. I am kind of new to this. So, you know, bear with me. It may not be super polished, but it will obviously kind of give you a smorgasbord of the different computational concepts that will enable you to go out there and understand and appreciate the ingredients of various data science, data engineering, high performance computing algorithms that you learn and read about. Okay, so today I'll give you a little bit of an insight on, you know, we keep talking about algorithms, right? So can we come up uh, informally or formally with a definition of algorithms, right? So algorithms, they're basically a set of computational steps that result in an output from a given input, right? So you're transforming an input to an output. And a very basic algorithm in computer science is um, the sorting algorithms, S-O-R-T-I-N-G, right? Sorting algorithms, they are considered to be a fundamental operation in computer science. And you will see in any algorithms class, one of the basic algorithms that you will learn about um, is sorting, right? Um, and um, the reason is, you know, like you, Basically, you may need to sort even your regular life, right? If you can think of a library, uh, the librarian will be sorting the books in the library, right? So it's a very basic fundamental operation um, that has to be done. And computer science has some efficient ways of doing sorting, right? So for example, uh, if you're given an input where you have a sequence of n numbers, um, the sorting operation may result in reordering of the numbers in ascending order or descending order, right? Um, so sorting, like I said, is a very fundamental algorithm in computer science, right? So in machine learning, for example, we have talked about different kernels. When I say kernels, I just mean building blocks, right? So you have seen that there are different kinds of algorithms that are used for classification, that are used for regression, 
etc. Right. So we have talked about these different algorithms that occur in machine learning, but algorithm is a much more basic concept, right? Um, so I kind of wanted to give you this little insight into algorithms. So for example, algorithms, like I said, a foundational algorithm is uh, sorting. But if you think of the different domains um, that are coming up in different um, aspects of life, say, if you consider medicine, right? The Human Genome Project has made uh, great progress toward the goals of identifying the 100,000 genes in human DNA, right? And determining the sequences of the chemical base pairs that make up human DNA and store information in databases and then develop tools for data analysis, right? So what happens is you have sequencing. Sequencing is done by these sequencers. And then you have to assemble right? So you have assemblers. And before that, you might also have error correction, right? So these are some of the basic building blocks or tools that are used uh, to make sense of the different sequences that come out of the different sequences, right? So genome assembly, for example, is a specific kind of tool. And there are various algorithms that do genome assembly, right? So you have short read assemblers, you have long read assemblers, so different kinds of assemblers, depending on what the sequencer was that sequenced the uh, genome in the first place. So that is one kind of algorithm. So I told you in the Human Genome Project, a very commonly used algorithm is the genome assembly algorithm. And that is done using a computational uh, process that results in genome assembly. Right. So that is one example of algorithms. Um, then another algorithm is, you know, uh, you can think of uh, these sensor networks that are ubiquitous. Right. So you might have to do data fusion from the data that is being generated by these different sensors. So if you consider, I know there are people in my class who are interested in IoT, that is Internet of Things, which is kind of a more modern way of um, calling sensor networks, right? Mesh networks or sensor networks, I think, because of how ubiquitous these sensor networks are, and they are used in these IoT applications, Internet of thing application, Things applications. So you have these things network, right? Uh, things networks, where you have data being generated by different kinds of sensors. So if you consider in the case of digital agriculture, for example, right? So if you have sensorized farms, you will have soil sensors, for example, that will give you uh, nitrate measurements, right? So you have VIN, which is the Wabash Heartland Innovation Network, which is uh, $40 million project that is going on in this area, in the Wabash area. And here, what uh, is being done is we are actually deploying different kinds of sensors uh, in um, Purdue and in adjoining areas and counties. And what we are doing is in these farms, you have uh, nitrate sensors, you have temperature sensors, you have moisture sensors. So you have data sets that are being generated by th these different kinds of sensors. And then you might have to do data fusion. So one of the algorithms that might be used in these cases, it's called anomaly detection, right? Um, so it's like outlier detection, but the more technical term for it is anomaly 
detection. So just like genome assembly was a very ubiquitous algorithm used for uh, genome sequences uh, that came out of the Human Genome Project, you can think of the IoT and digital agriculture domain having a lot of these anomaly detection algorithms, right? So one is anomaly detection, the other one is computer vision, right? So there are algorithms that power computer vision. So if you think of, you know, a drone flying on top, right? And has to quickly make some assessments or basically has to uh, instantiate computer vision. So there are computer vision algorithms and these computer vision algorithms are typically neural networks and the kind of neural networks that are typically powering these computer vision algorithms are convnets or convolutional neural networks. Continents have this property that they basically decrease the size of the neural network through some of the characteristics of these continents, right? So we talked about two different domains and two different types of algorithms in the IoT area, for example, anomaly detection algorithms and computer vision algorithms. Now anomaly detection algorithms, uh, what they are used for is if you can consider uh, these little sensors. So one of the things that is happening is these sensors are really inexpensive and they are ubiquitous. So they are being deployed, they are being installed um, at say specific distances in the soil, right? And there are algorithms again that help you design and deploy these sensors at specific intervals, right? So how do you decide how frequently to place these sensors, right? And so in some cases, these sensors are inexpensive. So you might need to take into consideration the reliability of these sensors and have possibly a higher density of these sensors than for more sophisticated sensors, right? So sometimes these sensors that are being deployed in the IoT world are inexpensive. So you basically have to take that into consideration and put possibly a higher density of sensors or have algorithms that can detect uh, if you have the sensors uh, deployed at the right distance to be able to get meaningful analysis from the sensors, right? Um, so, so there are algorithms that decide on the spacing between these sensors that are being deployed. And there are algorithms that measure the health of the sensors, right? So I told you anomaly detection Anomaly detection is generally done to measure the health of the sensors. Or in some cases, um, you know, in the digital agriculture area, it might be less rampant, but in more um, sophisticated or say in military uh, situations, there might be adversarial attacks on some of these sensors. So in some cases, the sensor may become anomalous because of a malicious attack on the sensor by an adversary. Right? So I just want you to get kind of a lay of the land, right? But for whatever reason, the anomalous sensor, uh, it's better to know that there are anomalies in the measurements and which are the sensors that are resulting in these anomalous measurements. So the anomaly detection uh, process of the algorithm basically tells you that. And one of the ways in which you can detect these anomalies is, uh, for example, these time series algorithms. A common example of a time series algorithm is ARIMA, A-R-I-M-A, right? So uh, then moving on to um, other ubiquitous algorithms. So for example, you might have heard of the page 
rank algorithm. The page rank algorithm is used um, for these uh, search engines, right? So Google's page rank algorithm is what is used for uh, searching. So just to give you some examples of algorithms that are used in various um, domains, right? And how ubiquitous they are. So another um, term uh, that I want you to keep in mind is data structure. Right. So a data structure is a way to store and organize data in order to facilitate access and modifications to the data. Right. And the reason I'm talking about data structures just very briefly is because I will cover uh, databases in one of my lectures where I will tell you a little more about how data is collected, processed and stored. Right. So we are talking about data, we're talking about data analysis. So I think one of the things that you should take away from this class is what is the efficient way of storing uh, these different data sets, right? So we will be talking about databases and we will be talking about two different kinds of databases, uh, SQL, SQL, and NoSQL databases. And that's why I think it's good to get an understanding of data structures. So like I said, to reiterate, a data structure is a way to store and organize data in order to facilitate data access and modifications. Another thing to keep in mind is if you Google data structures or if you read in the blogosphere, computer science blogosphere, you'll see that no single data structure works well for all purposes. So there are strengths and limitations of these different data structures. Now, another thing that I have been talking about is when you're um, benchmarking these algorithms, typically the way we benchmark algorithms. Uh, so when I say benchmarking, it means you're basically seeing what is the state of the art. And when you come up with a new algorithm, you compare your algorithm with the state of the art, right? And uh, two um, course ways of saying how you would benchmark a new algorithm versus the state of the art is one is accuracy, another is the efficiency of the algorithm, right? So you want efficient algorithms and a usual measure of efficiency is the speed of the algorithm, right? That is how long an algorithm takes to produce its result, right? So the speed of the algorithm is how long the algorithm takes to produce its result, right? And there are some problems that are very interesting because no efficient solution is known for this problem. And again, I might try to cover this in a uh, subsequent lecture, maybe um, in a bite-sized lecture, is, uh, you know, uh, something called NP-complete, N as in Netherlands, P as in Pennsylvania, hyphen complete. Now, NP-complete algorithms, uh, they're an interesting subset of these um, algorithms for which no efficient solution is known, right? And uh, another thing to uh, point out is although no efficient algorithm for an NP-complete problem has ever been found, nobody has ever proven that an efficient algorithm for an NP-complete problem cannot exist. Right. So that's kind of interesting. Right. So I'm going to repeat that because it's a little bit esoteric without really knowing what NP hardness is, NP slash hardness. Right. So I'm just going to repeat what I said so that, you know, it produces some dent in your brain structure and you might 
be intrigued to look into it at some point um, because we will not cover it in uh, detail in this uh, class. But uh, just to reiterate, an interesting subset of problems for which no efficient solution is known is an NP-complete problem. Right, And although no efficient algorithm for an NP-complete problem has ever been found, nobody has ever proven that an efficient algorithm for an NP-complete problem cannot exist. Right? So that's kind of interesting. Another thing, another concept that um, you, know, you will see comes up a lot in computer science and even in machine learning algorithms is how do you speed up the algorithm? How do you exploit the parallelism of an algorithm? Right? Um, so I just want to cover a little bit on that aspect, parallelism. Right? So for many years, uh, we could count on processor clock speeds increasing at a steady rate. Right? Processor clock speeds increasing at a steady rate. But there are physical limitations that present a roadblock to ever increasing clock speeds. Right? This is because as power density increases, super linearly with clock speed. Right? The reason why there is a fundamental roadblock is because power density increases super linearly with clock speed. And this makes it, you know, kind of harder to come up with really high clock speeds because then you can melt the chips by running at very high clock speeds, right? So hopefully this is making sense. So the processor clock speeds, they kept increasing at a steady rate for many years. But there is a physical limitation. Why? Because as there is this increasing clock speed, the power density, it increases super linearly with the clock speed. And so the chips, they run the risk of melting once the clock speed is very high, right? So there is a physical limitation to increasing the clock speed. So in order to perform more computations per second, Chips are now being designed such that uh, you don't just have one, but you have several processing cores, so multi-cores, right? So to uh, kind of address this problem, now you have these multi-cores. Chips are being designed such that you don't just have uh, one core, but you have several processing cores, right? So these are like multi-core computers right, um, to several sequential computers on a single chip. In other words, they are a type of parallel computer, right? So we can liken these multi-core computers to several sequential computers on a single chip, right? Is that making sense? So several sequential computers on a single chip. So it's like a parallel computer. And in order to get the best performance from these multi-core computers, we need to design algorithms with this aspect in mind, pa the parallelism aspect in mind, right? And this presents a new model of algorithms, and these are called multi-threaded algorithms. So multi-threaded algorithms, they use these uh, multi-core computers, right, efficiently, right? So they take advantage of these multi core computers, 
right? And this model has advantages from a theoretical standpoint because it forms the basis of several successful computer programs, right? To speed up a lot of different computer programs. So how do you um, parallelize a lot of these computer programs using multi-threaded algorithms, right? So another aspect, so this is just kind of a very high level definition of algorithms, some uh, canonical algorithms we talked about, such as the sorting problem, which is very basic to computer science. And then we talked about some domain-specific algorithms that are being used in different domains, such as in the Human Genome Project. You have genome assembly, which is an algorithm that is being used. Another one, actually, backtracking a little bit uh, in genome assembly, one of the things that you do is if you are given two ordered sequences of symbols, and we wish to find a longest common subsequence. So say we have x equals x1, x2 through xm, and then we have y equals y1, y2 through yn. And we want to find a longest common subsequence of capital X and capital Y. Right? So let me give you a simple example. So if you have um, a sequence A, B, C, D, E, F, G. One subsequence of the sequence can be A, B, C, D, right? So A, B, C, D is a subsequence of the sequence A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Now, oftentimes in computational genomics, you find the length of the longest common subsequence between two sequences X and Y, right? So when you find the length of this longest common sub subsequence, right? The higher the length of this longest common sequence of X and Y, the higher the similarity between these two sequences, right? So another uh, thing to keep in mind since we are talking about algorithms is the process or the algorithm that is used to um, solve this problem efficiently is called dynamic programming. Right? So we talked about genome assembly, and we also talked about the role of dynamic programming in computational genomics. On the other hand, in another domain that is pretty ubiquitous in today's data-centric world is the IoT or the Internet of Things domain. And we talked about some common algorithms such as anomaly detection algorithms that are used to measure the health of the different sensor nodes so this is the way you call sensors, oftentimes they are called sensor nodes, is anomaly detection, right? And another algorithm, which is a much higher bandwidth or computationally more expensive algorithm, is a computer vision algorithm. And that is also used quite a bit in um, the IoT domain, but also in the consumer industry, right? All these different um, cameras that you have um, for security, etc. They are using computer vision algorithms, right? And oftentimes when you're using computer vision algorithms, you may not want to do the computation on the cloud, kind of connecting it to the cloud paper, where you would basically have to have um, all the data being transported to the cloud, right? Instead, you might want to do some of the computation on the sensor nodes itself so that you don't have to transfer all the data to the cloud because it's a high bandwidth operation, 
right? So again, um, try to listen to these often. That way you'll kind of get um, some of these technicalities and the words that I'm using uh, imprinted, right, for future recollection when you read other uh, blogs or other news items or technical uh, tidbits here and there, right? Then we talked a little bit about data structures that data structure is a way to store and organize data so that you can facilitate data access or data modification. And there are different kinds of data structures that work well for different purposes, right? And then we also talked about hard problems, right? Something called NP hardness, right? So in most cases, when we design algorithms, not only do we want to design accurate algorithms, but we also want to design efficient algorithms. And a usual measure of efficiency is the speed of the algorithm. That is how long does the algorithm take to produce its result, right? And an interesting subset of problems for which no efficient solution is known is the NP complete subset of problems, but they are intriguing. Because although no efficient algorithm for these NP-complete problems have ever been found, nobody has ever proven that an efficient algorithm for an NP-complete problem cannot exist. And then finally, I tried to give you just a very um, little bit of a snapshot on parallelism and how you would need multi-threaded algorithms in order to elicit the best performance from multi-core computers. Right? So we need to design algorithms with parallelism, parallelism in mind for these um, multi-core computers. And why do we need multi-core computers? We need multi-core computers because of the physical limitations of ever-increasing clock speeds. Right? Because the power density increases super linearly with clock speeds and then you run the risk of melting the chips when the clock speeds become really high. Right? So in order to perform the, com the computations per second, more computations per second, you're designing these chips to contain not just one, but several processing cores. Right? And when you have these multi-core computers, the kind of algorithms that are used for these multi-core computers are called multi-threaded algorithms. So I'm going to stop here with this uh, first podcast format.